what a beautiful song that uh, prepares us and reminds us that when sorrows like sea billows roll, we're taught how to respond when that happens. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Friends, that song is a, a great preparation for our hearts as we open Scripture this morning, and I invite you to do so to chapter 21 of the book of Acts. Acts 21, we'll be reading from verse 1 um, to verse 16. As um, you are turning your Bibles there, I hope you may find it in the Bibles in, in the pew uh, in front of you on page number 930. As you turn there, I want to remind you that we are um, back in our series of sermons through the book of Acts. We'll continue to go in, in the Lord's um, providence. I might take us a few more weeks or months until we finish this book. Uh, but it has been a wonderful, wonderful story and journey through this book of Acts. And, and today, as we will see in our passage, um, there will be somewhat of a corner that we're turning. Um, let's read this passage and, and look at the corner we're about to take as we continue our study through the book of Acts. Chapter 21, verse 1. Here is the word of the Lord for us and our hearts this morning. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we seized and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason, 
of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to understand these truths, to open our minds and make these truths clear. For our hearts often have a tendency to distort, to cloud, to misinterpret, to misapply. Lord, we rely on the presence of your Holy Spirit among us this morning. For your holy glory and honor, we pray. Teach us and apply to us your word. Amen. Well, friends, as we are back in the book of Acts, this passage feels like um, we're back on the road again. That's what it feels like. Back on the road again. The initial um, trip uh, that Paul started, uh, it really started in, in Verse, in chapter 20, verse 16, if, if you could remember, um, it, Paul says there, that, or the passage says that Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul is, is hastening to go to Jerusalem. But from verse 17 in chapter 20 to verse 38, uh, Paul took a, a stop in Miletus to, to bring the elders of the church in Ephesus and speak to them. And, and we spent about five weeks uh, looking carefully at that passage, the instructions Paul gave the elders of the church in uh, Ephesus. But now he's back on the road. Now he's continuing his journey. And as he's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, there is a theme that resurfaces Stronger and stronger. And that theme is the prediction of Paul's suffering. Actually, if we look forward for the, to the rest of the book of Acts from this point forward, we will see that Paul's, the rest of the book of, of, uh, from this point on, tells us not only of Paul's journey to, to Jerusalem, but also of Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome. That's the rest of the book. Paul's journey to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem to Rome. But if we look forward and if we look at the details of that journey from Jerusalem to Rome, we notice that that journey Paul takes as a prisoner in chains. So that for the rest of this book, we will see that the predominant theme will be the theme of suffering and imprisonment. But this passage that we look at today shows us Paul's readiness for this destiny. This passage shows us Paul's readiness for this destiny. During this trip to Jerusalem, Paul is pressured and tempted and encouraged to back off, to change his plans, to avoid going to Jerusalem, to avoid the suffering. But he chose not to. This trip shows us Paul's readiness to suffer for the name of the Lord. How did Paul develop this readiness? What was his attitude? What was his mindset? What was his heart that he did not cave in to the pressure, even though it came from those who loved him and those who cared for him? This last segment of Paul's trip to Jerusalem has a few stops. 
And Luke only tells us or emphasizes two of the stops. Let's look at, at the experience Paul had in, in these two cities of Tyre and Caesarea. And after we look at these two stops, we will summarize five elements that can prepare our hearts to be ready for suffering. Let's look at Paul's stop in Tyre. This is the first point I'd like to just look at briefly. Paul's stop in Tyre. He, he was able to, to, to stay here seven days because of the ship uh, that had to unload its cargo. Verse 4 tells us that while Paul stayed here for, for, for this amount of time, he sought the disciples. Now, friend, I wonder if you had been in Paul's place, traveling for seven days in another city, I wonder if you would have sought other Christians. Just a question. Or would you just mind your own business? Or just do tourism to see how nice the city of Tyre is and take pictures? Paul, even for seven days, he sought the disciples. And actually, we see that, that there's a sweet fellowship that he developed even for seven days. How do we know that? Because at the end of the seven days, we read that when he's ready to go on board to the ship, they all came out of the city and walked with him to the, to the shore, to the ship. They accompanied him, and it was the wives and the children, everybody. Sweet fellowship in just seven days. But the focus of this story of Paul's journey in, or stay in, in Tyre is really the message he received from these believers not to go to Jerusalem. Look at verse 4 again. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, what exactly does this verse say? Does it say that the Spirit was, was telling Paul through these believers not to go to Jerusalem? Not really. As a matter of fact, earlier in chapter 20, uh, we read that Paul told that the, the Ephesus uh, elders, the elders in Ephesus, he said, I'm, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. It was the Spirit who constrained Paul to go to Jerusalem and warning him that afflictions await him. So was now the Spirit contradicting himself here or changing his orders for Paul? I don't think so. And from Paul's reaction, we know that's not the direction he understood from the Spirit. What most likely happened in this play, in this, at this time with these believers, is that the Holy Spirit revealed the facts of what will happen to Paul in Jerusalem. That was the act of the Holy Spirit. But then these believers interpreted the facts and drew some conclusions from these facts. And they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem in light of these facts which the Holy Spirit revealed to them. You see, the facts were true. What the Spirit spoke was true. But these disciples may have driven the wrong conclusion from these facts. Not to go to Jerusalem. Now, how many of you would take this as a sign that the Holy Spirit might be changing our direction? And it's providing an escape from suffering. How many of us would rather take the interpretation of, of these believers in Tyre. 
and wonder, Lord, are you telling me something different now? I know you told me to get going on this trip, but are you, are you changing my plans? Because I would gladly change my plans, especially in this case, right? But Paul didn't. He didn't do that. He had the discernment to know what the Spirit constrained him to do. And even this pressure from the believers of Tyre was not a call to divert his traveling plans, but only to confirm that suffering awaits him. Friends, why do we assume that the way of suffering must be avoided at all costs? Why do we assume that that's the, the inclination? Whenever there's suffering, we should, we should try to avoid it at, at all possible costs. Why do we assume that God may not want us to go through suffering? Is it because we might have a distorted theology of suffering? That we might have a distorted idea of the place of suffering in the life of the Christian? Remember what Paul taught the believers earlier in Acts chapter 14? I know it was many months ago when we looked through that, but it says in Acts 14, 21 and 22, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is what Paul taught about the life of a Christian. In other words, Paul had a view of the Christian life that allowed for or even ex expected the reality of suffering and tribulations. Now, the suffering that Paul is dealing with at this point is uh, a very specific kind of suffering that we don't always get to experience, and we don't experience this one very often. It's a suffering over which Paul had a choice. Paul could have chosen to take this route or not to take this route. Most of the suffering that we experience in life, we don't get that choice. It comes our way. We don't get to choose it. For instance, if, if, if the Lord brings suffering in our physical body through sickness, through weaknesses, we, may not, we don't have a choice. That comes our way. We don't, we don't have a choice at the beginning of that road to say, am I going to take it or not? Or, or if, the, if the Lord allows us to go through suffering, uh, a season of suffering in our lives due to, let's say, a dear family member passing away, and there's a suffering of loss and separation. We don't get a chance to choose. Do we take that or not? The Lord allows it. And we have to take it. We have no other choice. But then there's suffering, like in Paul's case. This is different. As he was marching to Jerusalem, he was reminded of warned about this, these sufferings, and he was encouraged not to take it. He was encouraged to, to go around it. There's a choice that Paul actually had in this situation. But Paul had preached to believers in Acts that entering the kingdom of God involves many tribulations, and now this text shows us how he himself is, is ready to take such tribulations. That's why he's not persuaded to change his traveling plans, especially that he was constrained by the Holy Spirit 
to go to Jerusalem. So Paul continued on his journey to Jerusalem, a journey to suffering. Friends, today there's a distortion of the Christian message that says that God doesn't want you to suffer. That there is no place for suffering if you are a child of God. You should claim it and name it, or name it and claim it. And friends, that's a lie. Now, it's true that there are many verses in the Bible where God's children are promised God's protection. That is very true. But there's also many places where suffering is predicted and where Scripture prepares believers for tribulation. So we should not pick and choose only those passages that we like and then create expectations only on half of the promises. Friend, I wonder if you have a view of the Christian life that allows for and makes room for the reality of suffering. If you're not a Christian, you may wonder, why would, why would I want this? Well, friend, hold on to this question until we hear the rest of the story. The next major stop, this is a stop in entire. The next major stop that Luke records for us is Paul's stop in Caesarea. Paul's stop in Caesarea. Now, Caesarea was the last stop. It was about 60 miles away from Jerusalem, a very short distance. Here in Caesarea, we see the last attempt to persuade Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And here we see the greatest attempt to, to seek changing Paul's mind. Luke gives us a few personal details about Paul's stay in Caesarea. In verse 8, we are told that Paul entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, why this detail? Because Philip here is distinguished from Philip the, the apostle. This is Philip the evangelist, one of the seven. That's, that means he's one of the seven deacons in Acts 6. Remember how the Lord called him to, and the church affirmed him in, in being a deacon? But then in chapter 8, Philip went out and started preaching the gospel, the word about Jesus in Samaria. And then later in chapter 8, he went on to preach the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember? Philip did that. And then after that experience, he continued to preach the gospel in, the, in that region all the way up to Caesarea. And when he got to Caesarea, he settled down. And here in chapter 21, we see him in Caesarea. And Paul gets to, to know him. I, I assume he, Paul was able to hear the stories of, of how the Lord used Philip to share the gospel in, in, in Samaria. But, but the focus here is not Philip. Paul's stay in, in Caesarea is not Philip. The focus is not on him. The focus is again on, on the Spirit of the Lord who used prophets at that time to foretell what would happen to Paul. And in verse 10, we read that while there, or staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. Again, we're going to see some facts. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And then look at how the believers in Caesarea reacted. Here's how they interpreted this news. Verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there 
urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Notice at this point, it's not just the people in Caesarea that urged him. Who is it? Who else is it? It's the we, Paul's traveling companions. Now everybody, everybody joins in in trying to urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem, to try to change his traveling plans. And notice the response Paul gives in verses 13 and 14. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. Now notice what Paul says here about his heart. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. Friends, when expecting suffering, whose heart should be broken? Those who would expect the suffering, right? What is Paul saying here? Whose hearts are broken here and weeping? It's the brothers. And their weeping is breaking his part. In other words, Paul's heart is strong. He has, he has determined what to do in his heart. And now the weeping of these brothers is breaking his heart. Here's an important lesson for us, an incredibly important lesson about readiness to suffer. Rest, readiness to suffer starts in the heart. Readiness to suffer starts in the heart. It doesn't start with the circumstances. This means that we de- develop readiness to suffer to the name of Christ prior to suffering, not after. Prior to. So many Christians fail to see the importance of this heart preparation even before the suffering comes. We assume here in the West that we are sheltered from suffering for the name of Christ. And by God's grace, this has been the case in the large majority of the situations. But we don't know what the future holds, even for us. But again, readiness to suffer should not be based on the circumstances, but upon the biblically informed mindset and heart. So I want to ask you for the rest of our time this morning, what causes a heart to be ready to suffer for the name of Christ? What causes a heart to be ready to suffer for the name of Christ? Let's look at five elements that we see both in this passage but also in the rest of the New Testament um, that prepare our hearts because that's where, that's where the preparation starts. Five things. First of all, a biblical view towards our own lives. A biblical view towards our own lives. We see that in Paul's attitude and, and view of his own life in, verses, in, in chapter 20, verses 22 and t- to 24, earlier in the previous chapter. Look at what Paul, what Paul said to the believers in Ephesus, to the elders in Ephesus. He says, I now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And look at verse 24 but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Did you notice how Paul accounts his life? Did you notice how he sees his life? Not as precious to myself, or I do not account my life 
of any value. Now, friends, don't think that Paul here is a depressed man. These are not the words of a man struggling with depression. These are not the words of a man who is struggling with suicidal thoughts. These, these, are, the, these are the words of a man who look at the rest of verse 24 says, If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord. In other words, finishing the course and finishing the ministry that he received from the Lord is more important to Paul than his life. Do you see how that changes the focus and the meaning? Finishing the course well is more important for Paul than protecting his life or than living a suffering-free life. Paul's desire to finish his life well was not about suffering or about, I'm sorry, was not about avoiding suffering, but about completing the task God has given him, even if the price is suffering. Friends, such a decision, such a decision to, to finish life well and faithfully must be decided in everyone's heart. Do we think about finishing well only in terms of the comforts of this life? Or do we think about finishing well in terms of being faithful to the Lord and faithful to the task He has given us, even at the cost of our comforts? We get ready for suffering by treasuring faithfulness to the very end over and above the earthly comforts of life. Readiness to suffer for the name of Christ is first a matter of the heart. Do we live with a kind of biblical detachment from our own lives that makes us willing and ready to spend our lives for the sake of Christ? Friends, if ending faithfully, if ending faithfully is not our highest aim, then we may not be ready to suffer for Christ. If we don't cherish Christ more than the very lives we live, we will not be ready for suffering for Christ. I love how one commentator said, Paul's life is less important than the ministry the Lord has given to him. That's what we see here. That's Paul's biblical view of his own life. Paul's life is less important than the ministry the Lord has given him. That's the first thing that prepares our heart for suffering, a biblical view of our own lives. The second thing that prepares our heart for suffering is a biblical view of God's sovereign will. A biblical view of God's sovereign will. The brothers in Caesarea, uh, when they realized that Paul's uh, determination and, and readiness to suffer uh, was so strong, they, they, they gave up. They give up pressuring. In verse 14, it says, Let the will of the Lord be done. Now, was Paul stubborn here? Humanly, it would seem so. But Paul was simply following the Spirit's constraining, the Spirit's leading. These believers seize their pleadings with Paul, not because Paul had a strong personality, but because they conceded that Paul's destiny is in the will of the Lord. In other words, if the will of the Lord involves suffering for Paul, 
why would we oppose the will of the Lord? Now, if you've been tracking with us um, in the book of Acts for the last few months, remember that at the very beginning when Paul was still a persecutor, the Lord appeared to Paul in the name uh, on, the road of Dama- on the road towards Damascus. And, and in that conversion experience, the Lord revealed to Paul the call, that, Paul is, that Saul is called not just to be an evangelist to the Gentiles, but also that the Lord called Paul to suffer for the name of Christ. Acts 9, 15 through 16, the Lord instructed Ananias to go and meet Saul the persecutor. And the Lord said to Ananias, go. For he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Friends, the will of the Lord may involve suffering for Christians for the sake of Christ. Suffering is part of the will of the Lord for some believers. We may not know why. But we should not be surprised when it happens. Paul wrote the Philippians in, Philipp- in Philippians 1, 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering is part of the will of the Lord. And Paul has determined in his heart to surrender his own will to the will of the Lord. Just as Jesus in Gethsemane, Pray to the Father, and he said, but not my will, but yours. So Paul, in his own heart, has determined to face this destiny, this will of the Lord for him. And eventually, so did the believers in Caesarea, even though they were much slower to accept the will of the Lord. Third, a third thing that prepares our hearts for suffering is a biblical view of suffering for Christ. We saw a biblical view of how to look at our own lives, a biblical view um, of the will of the Lord. Thirdly, a biblical view of suffering for Christ. How was Paul able to accept suffering? You know, sometimes we may accept the will of the Lord grudgingly. Right? At the end of the day, we have no choice. I mean, the Lord can do whatever He wants. And sometimes we accept it and we accept it grudgingly. But that's not what we see here in Paul. Paul is here the one telling these believers, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? He's the one encouraging them. He's the one trying to sustain them, to, to, to keep us stronger about these matters. This is a man who, whose heart has been determined to meet suffering. How did he do that? How, how can you look in the face of suffering and say, I'm ready. I'm willing. I'm going to encourage others about this too because it seems like they are more discouraged about me than I am. How can Paul do that? How could Paul determine to go to Jerusalem, he who used to be a persecutor, and now he would go to Jerusalem expecting to be persecuted? What enabled him to meet such a destiny? Well, remember, Paul did encounter the resurrected Christ. And in that miraculous encounter, Christ identified himself with those whom Paul was persecuting. Remember how the resurrected Christ addressed Paul? Saul, Saul, 
Why do you persecute me? And even though Paul was persecuting Christians, not Christ, he now realizes that this resurrected Christ who is exalted in his glory, he is actually identifying himself with, with those who suffer for the name of Christ. What was the secret? If Paul's willingness to submit to the will of God in suffering, Paul had become convinced of the resurrected Christ, the one who overcame death, the one who associated himself with the persecuted. The resurrection of Christ, dear friends, transforms our attitude about how we should look at suffering and death, not only for Jesus, but for us also. Jesus has overcome death so that we can despise it, so that we can look in the face of it and be ready to meet it. I love what John Calvin says on this passage. He says, the servants of Christ cannot be prepared to do their duty unless they despise death. And none can ever be well encouraged to live to the Lord but those who willingly lay down their lives for the testimony of truth. No wonder that Paul was willing to follow Christ in his sufferings. Remember what Paul wrote to the Philippians, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We love this part. If you would stop there, it would be great. But then Paul goes on and he says, and that I may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. We love the, e the victory of the Easter events, of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But are we willing and ready to follow Christ also in his suffering and death? Or do we only love the resurrection of Christ as if we were only spectators of it? You know, we think of the resurrection of Christ with the mentality of watching a game. And we think of the resurrection of Christ as, as our team is winning. Look at what our team has been able to do. But we still stand and watch. And Christ says, come and follow me. And that path of following is through suffering and death. But we so prefer just the, the stands or the TV. Not, not going the game. Christ says, follow me. It is a path to victory, but it's a path that goes through suffering and even death for the sake of Christ. Friends, if there is one area where the world has influenced the way we think as Christians, it's in the area of suffering. The world says that suffering is the worst thing that can happen to you. Something that to be avoided at all possible costs. Yet Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 15, Five, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, encountering the resurrected Savior gives us a different attitude towards suffering for his name. Such a biblical view of suffering is a matter of the mind and the heart. 
before it's a matter of the circumstances. Blessed are those who suffer. Fourth, there's a biblical purpose for suffering. There's a biblical purpose for suffering. Not only to have a biblical view of suffering, but to have a biblical purpose for suffering. There's a number of purposes for suffering, but one of them, when it comes to suffering for the name of Christ, one of them is to show the weightiness of this gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the purposes of suffering for the name of Christ is to show the weightiness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at Paul's own answer, verse 13. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem. Why? For the name of the Lord Jesus. And let me ask you, is the gospel you believe worth suffering for? Is the gospel we believe worth suffering for? Do we have such a view of the gospel of the Lord Jesus that we find it more important than the comforts of our lives, than the safety of our lives? Or do we find our lives more important than the gospel of Christ? What is at stake in suffering for the gospel is not simply our lives and comforts, but the importance of the gospel. What is more important? The name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be proclaimed or my life? Paul says, I'm ready even to give my life for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. His name is more important than my life. Friend, you might wonder, it's like, what is this gospel you're talking about that is more important than, than human life? Oh, friend, that's the point. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is more important than our life. You know what? It was more important than his life. That's why he gave it. That's why he was willing to face death. Because we deserve death. And this is the gospel message that we proclaim that we deserve death every one of us because of our sin because of our rebellion because of our wandering away from god and yet god in his love chose to bring us back to himself chose to call us to himself and the way to bring us back to himself was that the life of the lord jesus had to be given for the sake of this gospel message to be proclaimed Yes, the gospel is more important than our lives. The gospel is more important than the life of the Son of God. And yet he, rose, he died and rose again three days later so that those who repent of their sin and turn to him in faith and repentance may be called back to God and embraced in God's family and become adopted sons and daughters of the great God and King. Oh, friend, if you've never responded to this gospel, if you never understood the weightiness of this gospel, I pray that today you, you'd come after the service, come and talk to me. I would pray that you today you would respond to this gospel. Give your life to this gospel that is more important than your very life. wonder, for those of us who have believed this gospel, do we still understand that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is more important than our comfort? more important than our life, more important than our safety, is it worth surrendering our lives for? Lastly, a fifth reason that prepares us 
for suffering for the name of Christ, a biblical readiness to associate with those who suffer for Christ. If the exalted Jesus identified himself with the persecuted, why would we not? I was so encouraged a few weeks ago when some of our members approached me and asked and expressed a desire to stay more connected as a church with Christians who are persecuted around the world for the sake of Christ. A man who leads uh, an organization ministering to the persecuted Christians was asked recently, um, what are the top two things Christians in the West can do for those who are suffering for Christ? And without hesitation, this man said, number one, pray for them. Pray for them. Prayer can do more than anything else you can do. Prayer can do more than anything else you can do. And second, stay connected to hear what they're going through. There's such an encouragement to these believers who are persecuted to simply know that those who are not care and watch and hear what's going on. That they're not left alone in their sufferings. Of course, they're not left alone by by the Lord Jesus, but they're not left alone by others who think and pray and care and, and think about them. Friends, one of the ways we can get ready for suffering for the name of Christ is by making intentional effort to stay connected and to pray for those who suffer, to know what's happening with them. That's why we'll be posting on Facebook. We'll be encouraging through, through, uh, through emails of ways we can keep you connected to what's happening. Uh, Hebrews 10.32 says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted a plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Friends, we want as a congregation to stay connected with those who go through suffering and persecution. This week, we'll be informing you, we'll be sending you via email uh, some resources of how you can stay plugged in and connected. We want to be encouraging one another regularly to pray for the persecuted Christians. Five things how we keep our heart ready for suffering even before suffering happens. Number one, a biblical view of our own lives in contrast with God's task for us. A biblical view of our own lives. A biblical view of God's sovereign will for us. A biblical view of suffering for Christ. A biblical purpose for suffering to show the seriousness of the gospel message. And lastly, a biblical readiness to associate with those who suffer for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we indeed have been blessed by not having to suffer for you here in the West. But Lord, remind us of the truth of your word that you did pronounce it a blessing when your followers do suffer for the sake of Christ. Lord, prepare our hearts. Form us, mold us in such a way by your truth that we would be ready to suffer. Should that be your will for us? Lord, make us strong. Give us a view of your message of the gospel, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as being worth surrendering everything for, everything in our lives. Oh, Lord, we pray, would you continue to show us the preciousness of Christ?
And may we be a people who are ready to surrender our lives with the Lord Jesus. And may his name be exalted and proclaimed through us. Amen.